So, loads of pain, and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday, and we are here for the last uh, part of our new gen retrospective, looking at, at 1995 and myth busting the whole damn year. And we've really had some good shows we've enjoyed revisiting. And this is the last one of the year, rather appropriately, as we've just had Christmas. Uh, this is Seasons Beatings in Your House 5, um, which uh, came to us from Hershey, Pennsylvania, famous, of course, for the chocolate, um, uh, on December 17th, 1995. Um, and, of course, most prominently features a rematch from SummerSlam 92 that Plan and I probably talked about on this show approximately 900 times uh, <laughs> over the years. And probably both of us have written about it. Uh, about 900 times each because we absolutely love it but lots of other interesting stuff on this show not least of course the hog pen match that plan's been chomping at the bit to discuss <laughs> ever since we started this series um i mean as we get into the end of 1995 um you know we're kind of seeing um a, a lot of things that have been you know brewing throughout the year um especially if you think about the the razor ramon kids split which they teased for a long time and has finally happened by this point um the gold dust razor ramon stuff starts here um obviously brett and bulldog's long-running storyline uh owen and diesel is kind of uh brought into being by owen famously you know supposedly putting michaels out with the uh kick to the back of the head after he comes back from being beaten up by marines um Undertaker finally finishes off King Mabel. Like, there's a lot going on here that's been sort of, you know, set up over the previous months and takes us into '96 and the Rumble. Uh, yeah. Um, like you say, it, it was one of the, I guess, one of the the themes of this series that we've done, and that I've certainly banged on a lot about, is how the the product is is immediately as Royal Rumble was getting more and more aggressive. And it's kind of late 96, 97 that gets all the credit for that. But it really was a process that was beginning as early as January 95 with that Brett Diesel match. And it's kind of, you know, been growing and growing and growing. You've got the first table bump that we covered at Survivor Series uh, last time on the show. Um, and Seasons Beat, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll get to the talking about the main event in earnest later, I suppose. But Seasons Beatings is a show that ends on a very violent note in its own right. Um, and then by the time he gets to night six, you've got sort of, uh, you know, Sonny cut in, uh, in, in kind of uh, provocative, um, uh, uh, I don't know what the industry term is it term for it is, but, the, you know, those short videos that will appear at the start of a show, uh, warning people of sexual content or, or something of that nature. So it was getting um, increasingly more violent and, and, and slightly edgier and slightly more adult. <clears throat> And then with the diesel, uh, sort of the diesel tweener turn at this point um, and uh, the, the style of matches that Brett was wrestling and Sean's look was getting grungier uh, and all of the things that you mentioned combined with the, just the general tone. I think you look at season's beatings and it's a little bit, it feels a little bit like um, a, a lightning in a bottle in, in one sense in that it, it's, I think it's, it's very demonstrative of, the the as you say that the 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 massive amount of change that was that was now really kind of begin to take off and, and starting to snowball you know that snowball's kind of beginning to really pick up some pace as it 
goes on the 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 downhill turn towards attitude um and it's and it's it so as a result you get to, it feels very much like a almost like a crossroads or a nexus point in 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 their history uh, because of of the way that everything is kind of happening at the same time in a way that perhaps wasn't necessarily obvious at the time uh, as these things rarely are uh, but i think when you look back on it now and you see uh, all of the various facets, you know, Goldust's character is now beginning to get very kind of uh, explicitly homoerotic and, and provocative in that sense. And you had, you had uh, sort of zanier ideas like the Hogpen match being rolled out, uh, and, and certainly Helmsley's matches were felt very kind of um, aggressive as well compared to the standard. So Undertaker was getting more mobile at this point and, and toying with kind of darker imagery a lot of the time that would obviously culminate with Mankind after WrestleMania 12. But um, yeah, it's 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 a tipping point is December of 1995, I think, sort of a point of no return almost like it's it's when they feels like the, the, they're they're fully committing and saying we are going to go down this edgier route with our wrestling now. And there's a lot there that you wouldn't have known at the time that, you know, we're entering the last few months of Razor Ramon's tenure with the company, entering the last few months of Diesel's tenure with the company. and you know, that is something about the 90s landscape, which I guess, you know, uh, we'll see how things go in terms of the AEW, WWE, inverted commas, rivalry. I'm not convinced it's really a rivalry, but um, certainly a big feature of that 90s landscape was people switching sides. I mean, that was the case even before, you know, the inverted commas war started. Um, but being in a situation where Razor is holding the Intercontinental Championship. Diesel has just held the World Championship for 290-something days. Um, and yet, just as they're getting into some of their most interesting work, both of them up and leave. And it's, I mean, we've talked about that what-if scenario, about what if they'd stayed into Attitude quite a lot, um, particularly with Diesel, given how well that character would have played in that more aggressive landscape. I mean, they have a vignette before this show um, that features Diesel's tweener turn after his loss to Bret Hart at Survivor Series. Um, and it's it's a fantastically put together vignette. You know, they show him just running down to the ring and just beating up everybody. Like, you know, he kicks Yokozuna over the top rope uh, after a Yokozuna match with somebody else. He, you know, he's just powerbombing Bret Hart. He's doing whatever, whatever the hell he wants, you know. And it, it's a character that, in some ways, um, isn't unlike what Austin would go on to do. It's very much like what Austin would go on to do. And and I think I've even said in a column or on a show somewhere uh, over the last few years at some point that, uh, you know, it is fascinating to think of what might have happened with Austin's career trajectory, whether that version of Diesel had stuck around because he might have been doing it a year earlier than Austin did. Uh, and you could have very easily, because they'd already gone all in with Diesel for a for a lengthy period of time, obviously for a year or so. And had he stuck around, I don't think he would have been, uh, you know, going down the 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 ladder of the roster any uh, certainly any time soon. The title would have eventually worked its way back to him. And if he'd have carried on with the kind of character work and performances he was doing at this point in time, and certainly by the time you get to the build up to WrestleMania 12, 
you'd have very much the kind of edgy anti-hero character that Austin became, perhaps a little less vociferous than Austin was, perhaps with a little less volcanic energy than, than what Austin brought, but no less effective. And certainly I think by the time you'd have got to sort of December 96, January 97, no less popular either. Yeah, I dare say. Um, you know, it was it was very interesting to see Diesel sort of as well, like, you know, interrupt backstage interviews and sort of, you know, his delivery had changed on the mic quite a lot. And, you know, when you consider that Diesel's um, championship run is often seen as being this kind of Vince trying to get a big guy to be a vanilla big guy like Hogan was and all this sort of stuff and how that was a failure. You see, we, you know, we called this series myth busting. You see that as the myth that it genuinely was because, you know, at no point in his run was Diesel really a hand-slapping babyface. You know, he was a he was a big, tough guy that, you know, happened to be positioned as a face. But obviously this sort of tweener-heel stuff was much more what he was good at. And it's interesting that when he did go into WCW, obviously that was the role that, you know, the outsiders, the NWO played, was that they were cool bad guys. And obviously we said before, when we looked at some In Your House 4, that this idea the click had of being cool bad guys is something which they'd been trying to shoehorn into WWF for quite a while. And obviously Razor and, uh, and Nash got their chance to do it. And obviously Triple H and Michaels have to wait, you know, a whole, I mean, at this point, a whole two years before they got their chance to do it. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of the outsiders stuff. I may be wrong, but um, I would hope that perhaps it was a little less, um, uh, uh, well, it's beside the point anyway. We're talking about '95, so scratch that. But um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I and I think it's it's. I'd make two points. The first is that I think it's because Kevin Nash was uh, maybe the lead was the leash was slackened a little bit. Now he wasn't the top guy, or maybe it was a it was a conscious thing to allow him to allow Kevin Nash to show a little bit, or or for Diesel to show a little bit more Kevin Nash in him. Because uh, it feels like his performing is a lot more comfortable and a lot more natural um, when he drops the title than what it had been. Um, the second is it's exactly the kind of character that, that, that they should have been doing with Roman Reigns when they were trying oh, to yeah. push Roman Reigns in, in 2015 and 2016, uh, 2016 particularly. Um, because you, 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 know, you go back and you, you watch what Diesel was doing post-Survivor Series 95 through to when he left the company in in whenever that was, April, May, 96. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can easily envision Roman Reigns doing that very comfortably uh, himself. And it, and that's the kind of, again, you know, another theme of this show has been remembering that, or, or pointing out that this whitewashing of Nugent out of history has, as a result, whitewashed some very, very important historical lessons. Uh, and one of them is in the form of Diesel and what happens after he drops the title. And that's the fact of making sure that you can you can still portray the same character that's been created by the company. But there's no reason why you can't show enough of yourself in it to make it interesting as well, which you would think is a, a very fundamental, basic, almost implicit and presumed aspect of producing a wrestling company. But apparently it isn't. Um, but but absolutely, it should have been the kind of character that they were pulling with the, or that they should have been pulling with Roman 2015, 2016 time. And I think it would have been popular. I mean, it's that exit strategy, isn't it, from the championship win? You know, when when a, a character does drop that title, you need to have a plan for them. Even if that plan is they get annoyed about not being the champion and they have to earn their way back into contention, you know, or 
whatever it might be. But, you know, it's really important that you actually think about what you're going to do with them from a storyline perspective. And I always felt with Roman Reigns that his arc was all about being the top guy. And so whenever he wasn't the top guy, he felt like an irrelevance, really. Um, and you look at what he's doing on SmackDown at the moment. I mean, from a distance, obviously I'm not watching weekly, but he doesn't seem to be doing much of anything um, other than, you know, it being in some sort of never-ending feud with Baron Corbin. And <laughs> that's that's the, uh, you know, and that's the that's the problem with making somebody's character all about being a top guy in waiting is that then there's nothing for them to do when they transpire to a not particularly be the top guy and b um never have any kind of closure to any of his character arcs um well or beginning in fact because you know how many times we've talked about the roman reigns reset um different character every week it feels like or did uh, i can't comment on on what he's doing now i haven't read any results in months so i've i've not got a clue but it it makes me laugh that he's in a never-ending feud with with baron corbin because uh you know why not that's well, what who, who isn't put right? someone exactly yeah that's what happens when you put someone baron corbin um uh, but yeah it's it's i mean exit strategy is a nice term to use uh because they uh, you know diesel had been um undoubtedly, you know, in the, in his presentation, like there was no doubt he was their top guy for 95. Uh, and, uh, you know, to then drop the title essentially to the guy that he pretty much won it off. I mean, they had, they did a transition with Bob Backlund, so he never beat Brett for the championship, but to drop it back to Brett um, could have threatened to feel like it's interesting because it could have threatened to feel like a, re- a soft reset or a, uh, uh, going going back on themselves a little. I dare say, if if similar events were to happen today, that's what it would feel like because of the product. But because the in new gen, the narrative always felt like it had such forward momentum, and the character arcs always took that next logical step in the revolution. Uh, it didn't feel like that at all, and and it felt. And, and I know Brett has had some um, harsh words about how he felt like he was basically just carrying the title to drop it to Sean, and that he deserved better, and so on and so forth. Um, but it felt very much like the perfect end to that rivalry that eventually that Diesel never beat Brett for the championship, could only ever force a draw in a competitive title defense um, or challenge, and then eventually drops it to the guy who never wrestled for the title in the first place, which is Brett, who got cheated out of the title in the first place by Owen and Bob Backlund at Survivor Series 94 a year prior. Um, you know, it's a seamless web of, of logical conclusion followed by, uh, you know, the perfect next step for every character with diesel. It is progressing into that tweener role for Brett. It is revisiting, uh, more elements of his past that have now sort of risen back into the ascendancy, um, while he's been chasing his title opportunities. So, uh, you know, just, just logic in every corner, which is what new gem was all about. Of course. Well, quite. Um, so we're looking at a, a sort of a shifting landscape in terms of both the personnel and in terms of the philosophy of the company. It's interesting. I, I'd, I'd love to know how conscious this sort of edge to the product at this point in time was, because it certainly doesn't feel as deliberate as the 97 shift does. As you say, it had been gradually happening. and It does feel quite organic. So I'd love to know if they did discuss 
I know that, I... like, for example, Brett's blading in this, he wasn't meant to do. It was illegal blading, inverted commas, and he got a telling off from Vince afterwards. Um, so it's, I'd, I'd love to kind of know how much of it was deliberate and how much of it was just the way things were moving, and then they stepped on it a bit more deliberately in 97. I th- I th- my uh, presumption has always been, well, it hasn't always been, but has become that um, I can't envision it was a deliberate effort on the part of the the sort of the company management that says, you know, we're going to take this direction. I, you know, it might have been so in another six months' time, 12 months' time, they might have been deciding to do that. I remember that Vince got a weird meta promo uh sometime in 97 saying that we're you know where he basically announced we're now going to be attitudinal and we're not going to have good guys and it was very strange but um <laughs> you're right saying it's nowhere near as conscious and i think it's just a conflict a conflict just a series i'll keep it simple just a series because i can't talk just a series of 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 uh, various cogs moving in the same direction quite separately um sort of uh converging into um the sense of a more uh con uh aggressive product um brett's performances in the ring tonally being uh, i mean that's the one i'd be fascinated to know is whether he was doing that on purpose but but brett's regardless brett's uh, increased aggression in the ring Diesel kind of flexing that extra bit of attitude in his his character work, which I dare say simply stemmed from him wanting to be able to be a bit freer in his portrayal and less kind of generic as a top guy. Uh, Sean following suit with with Kevin Nash and, and aching to, despite being a babyface, carry on being the heel, naturally creating um, you know an antihero in itself. Uh, the, uh, you know, Sonny, I mean, there's only one way you use Sonny at this, at this point in time, if you have her, uh, which is exactly what they do. And that alone is going to add a certain tone to things. Um, you know, the Goldust character comes along and is, and is, is, um, it is what it is, but, uh, you know, that alone is, is, is often attributed as being a driving force towards attitude as well. So I think you have all of these, even the undertaker, you know, being freer and different and, and a little bit more loose and then mankind being presented almost as a necessity for this new, newer version of the undertaker to face. Uh, and, and Mick Fole is in sort of uh, a preferred style in the ring being uh, more violent and a little bit more um, uh, hardcore uh, to use uh, a tired term. I think all of these things are happening quite separately, but because they're happening at the same time, because you have this driven locker room, each motivated by their own, you know, mission statements as performers, whether that's Undertaker wanting to be more competitive in the ring or Brett being more aggressive or Sean being an anti-hero or, or Diesel wanting to be Kevin Nash, uh, because it's all happening at the same time, it, it, it creates an environment and an atmosphere and a culture that is almost responding to things that are happening in the wider industry, in WCW, in ECW, and so on. Um, and that's why I think, A, as you said, it feels organic, and B, why that change to where they get to in 97 feels so gradual, because it, it just feels like a natural endpoint. And I've often said, you know, as much credit goes to ECW for making, you know, wrestling as, as hard-edged as it would be in the late 90s, you know, I think it was probably going to be heading that way regardless uh, and ECW kind of, I guess, accelerated the 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 process or, or catalyzed a, a 
a, a harder version of it. But I think we were headed that way quite naturally, just because of the 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 driving forces and motivations of the performers. And you look at the the locker room today, and I don't agree with this notion that they aren't hungry enough or they don't want to grab the brass ring or anything. But there is a sense of, you know, you need to be willing to maybe be a bit braver in, in straying from the script. If you think it's going to benefit performances or whatever, you need a Bret Hart who's willing to take the blade job on television because he knows he's indispensable to the company. He can do it well and is prepared to take the, the tongue lashing backstage. You know, you need a, an Austin who's going to flip a bird, even though it's against the company policy, uh, you know, and, and we've heard for so long that they don't do that because it's they've had nowhere else to work. Well, now you've got plenty of places to work. So stop trying to chase the best match of the night and using that as your primary motivation and your only motivation, uh, you know, and, and, and well, I don't know what to do. But, but, you know, that's I think that's what was happening at this point in time is I think you had all these different performers motivated, doing different things that all just so happened to be kind of headed towards uh, a natural direction. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, luck involved in pro wrestling boom periods as well as judgment. And, you know, I think what New Gen allowed a lot of the characters that would go on to be really successful in Attitude to do was to to have that that blank canvas to paint themselves on. Um, and, you know, the opportunity to kind of grow in, in an environment where, you know, they, there was essentially nothing to lose. So it was kind of, you think that'll work? Okay, let's go ahead and do it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think if maybe this particular uh, fallow period we're in at the moment, whether somebody like a Seth Rollins might need to take that, that, that leadership role and, and say, right, I'm going to do this. <laughs> even though well, no yeah absolutely because you know there's the, the leadership is more than just towing a company line like you would expect them to tow the company line in public to a degree because you know it's it's to show that kind of you know you're going to big up your own work and you're going to big up the work around you because that's how you're going to sell tickets and that's how you're going to turn people onto it and stuff um but yeah it, there needs to be i think uh, perhaps a little bit more as you say daring do when they're out there because ultimately they're the performers they're in control of what their bodies are doing and what their mouths are saying and they might have a script but you know whatever yeah tear it up absolutely um okay so let's look at some of the matches then so we have uh, first of all uh, a, a real uh you know belated appearance in the series of marty Gennetti. um <laughs> Uh, tagging with Razor Ramon. I mean, it's bizarre that Marty Gennetti from, like, 1987 until, like, this point just doesn't look any different. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, he's wearing the same gear. I know we talked about this, like, a while ago, but, you know, if you, if you ever wanted to sort of understand why Sean became what he did and what Marty became what he did, it wasn't because Sean was a more talented wrestler. It was because, you know, Sean understood how to adapt his character to move on from what he had been i don't think marty ever quite got that um uh of course tagging with razor here um against one to three kids who plays a brilliant petulant little bastard in this match uh tagging with psycho sid i quite like the way that dibiossi has presumably branded them as uh sid and the kid yeah uh yes. as a tag team name which is underrated frankly uh but but yeah we've talked about the arc. love's a rhyming couplet yeah we've talked about the arc of uh 
of Razor and the Kid, uh, pretty much that last the entirety of New Gen. Um, and this would eventually, of course, lead to the, what do they call it again? The Crybaby match? Uh, yes, the Crybaby match. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which is, again, gimmick pay-per-view coming your way soon, Crybaby. <laughs> but, um... Is that where all the fans wrestle each other? Quite possibly. Um... Yeah, so I really liked it, but quite pretty standard new-gen tag team pattern match, but very enjoyable and obviously with a clear storyline direction behind it as well. Yeah, absolutely. For some reason, I I had remembered Marty as being healed by this point, but I'm obviously I'm I'm wrong in that. Um, as you said, superlative stuff from uh, from the kid. Uh, Gold dust hanging around as well at this point to initiate his his rivalry with Razor Ramon. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, what are you going to expect when you get Razor Marty and the kid in the ring? And Sid, to, to a degree as well, to be fair, you know, you're going to get something good. And it's that's exactly what you is what it is. Like you say, it's pretty, you know, pretty generic patterned stuff. But uh, I think great performances help make it uh, more than the sum of its parts. Uh, and, you know, like you said, sets up that crybaby match, which is another... Great example of DBRC's own character arc that I banged on throughout this series about as power through influence and hating embarrassment, and that's exactly what happens to him through Kid. Um, I think it might be... Is it the last time you see Kid? I don't know. Um, certainly it's one of the the, the, the final major matches that DBRC is involved in um, as he sort of takes on the ringmaster. But uh, we're not going to be talking about that in this series, I suppose. So, yeah. Once again, we're back into that territory of a match that just helps round out a pay-per-view with a nice bit of variety and, and helps make it into a satisfying watch. Yeah, really, really good match. Four very good performers. Um, and, you know, the commentary here is very good as well in terms of uh, the way in which they tell the story, which is nothing that modern wrestling could presumably uh, learn from a little bit. Um, modern wrestling would be better without commentary. <laughs> no, indeed. Um, so we've got modern this... wrestling would be better without wrestlers. <laughs> it's a nihilistic territory now. <laughs> we've got this uh, strange little segment they cooked up because, and this is actually what led to Dean Douglas leaving the company was that he was injured uh, on a house show, refused to wrestle Ahmed Johnson as he was supposed to be. So they have him come out and cut a promo explaining that he can't wrestle because he's only got 65% of a back or some strange phrase of that, of that sort. And, um, and so he brings out this Ric Flair parody character, Buddy Landell. Yeah. Um, to be squashed by Ahmed Johnson instead. And then essentially Douglas is done with the company a day or two later. So very odd chain of events. And I guess probably today they, they wouldn't even have bothered with any of the explanation. They just, you know, it would not... have been a bonus match previously unannounced. Fuck off. Well, they just would have just, or they could just not wrestle an announced match. I mean, they've done that before. Poor old, uh, Bella's Cody, the Funkadactyls. And... Where the hell did <laughs> yeah. you put that one from? <laughs> I always remember the, the, like, um, I forget what it was. I think, like, you know, 
It was, um, I think, was it WrestleMania 29? Yeah, it was, yeah. They cut it from it, and they didn't even announce they'd cut it. It just never happened. And I, I think I remember seeing this clip from Total Bellas where uh, the backstage agent comes to tell Bree that the match isn't going ahead. <laughs> it's just like... It was just hilarious. Um, anyway, we were robbed of that classic match in WrestleMania lore, sadly. Uh, but, but yeah, they, I think, you know. Imagine if that would have been the match that like redefined wrestling's boom period for another ten years or something. I think it probably would have prevented the boom period from happening. But a um, boom period, yeah. A, uh, but yeah, this this is obviously a very silly bit of nonsense. But I guess Ahmed Johnson they were heavily pushing at this time, and so any opportunity to give him a squash match, you assume they'd have had him squash Dean Douglas anyway. So. I guess it's not all that different in terms of outcome. You do see a little bit more of that violence again after the fact, though, when Jarrett and uh, Lawler beat him down and there's, um, you know, the record in the framed, you know, in the frame, the gold record yep. and the chair and, and steel steps and stuff. So you get more of that edge there. And it's always cool. I always liked it when uh, they'd have wrestlers announce they were entering the Royal Rumble. And I think Jarrett does that before this match takes place. Um, the, just because it's always exciting to hear, you know, who's going to be... Have they done that yet this year? Has anyone uh, yeah, Le- Lesnar has, has announced himself as number one. Isn't Les- Lesnar's the champion? Yeah, he says he just wants to do it to be dominant or something. Oh, for the love of fuck. <laughs> but it's ironic that our prediction may finally come true. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, imagine if Lesnar does actually go coast to coast this year. I don't. And, uh, I, I'm trying not to imagine anything to do with the uh, the current state of wrestling, Mav. I might. I might drive my head through a window pane <laughs> without Shawn Michaels to do it for me. I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure he's around. Some. Isn't he actually working at NXT UK at the moment? Like, uh, <laughs> is, he's probably around. around. <laughs> Throw me through a window. <laughs> yep. Um. Oh, we lost some stuff now. But yeah, it, yeah, like you say, the, the the Jarrett thing where he comes out and, you know, announces his second album and the fact that he's going to be in the Royal Rumble, that's very well done. He has an interview with Lawler. Also, I love the fact that Jarrett uh, has to have it explained to him who Ahmed Johnson and Dean Douglas are because he's been away since they were, uh, <laughs> yes. since, since they sort of debuted. So I thought that was quite clever from a kayfabe continuity point of view. I agree entirely. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, he's not going to know who they are because he's not been around. Yeah, and that's the it's it's kind of that it's kind of that minor attention to detail that that is so sorely missed. Kind of reminds me of again. That. It's 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 new gen's product not being aware of itself. It's yeah. that lack of self awareness that's so wonderful. No, agreed, agreed. Um, it's a bit like that Survivor Series match that time when. Uh, Shawn Michaels pinned Mike Knox, then like, I had to ask Triple H who he was. <laughs> well, but, yeah. well, um, I, I, would, I would contend that has a more cynical edge to it. Oh, it does, yeah, no doubt. I, it's just, you know, as click antics go, that was one of the funnier ones, I thought. Um, right, so talking of the click, uh, we have the hog pen match. I know you've been anxious yes. to talk about this for a long <laughs> love, time. Love the hog pen match. Um, it's a total guilty pleasure. This is up there with the House of Horrors as my <laughs> one of my great all time wrestling guilty pleasures. Uh, you you and weird gimmick matches. It's like, <laughs> you, you're, even, you're even a big fan of the sledgehammer on a pole match. <laughs> the sledgehammer ladder match. Oh absolutely. My God. Over the hill, Kevin Nash in it. Oh my god, it's like you know, the real plans were waiting to come out this whole time. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sat here. I'm like, I'm not watching wrestling anymore. It's absolutely ridiculous. But if I get to talk about hog pen match, I'm all in. Totally. But come on, knock yourself out. Like what? So I mean, I agree. It's it's a really fun match. But um... well, I think I, first of all, it's 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 the whimsy of it. You know, uh, it's like this. And again, it's a guilty pleasure. I'm not going to sit here and say this is a great all time great match. It isn't. Um, you know, there's not really a lot that happens in it that's of that's of, of any real note. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of awkward in the way that they because when you get one of these gimmicks where there's something in the aisle way, like a buried alive match, you know, and they have to kind of cart someone up and navigate up the aisle way to the area where they're going to win. You know, the, the, the movement involved in that is often very awkward. It's the same here. It's heavy on the brawling. Um, but the the and the slop gimmick I've I've always found kind of tiresome, you know, where Godwin goes to throw the bucket of, of slop on someone. But having said all of that, I think the whimsy of it is very charming. You know, you've got you've got um, Henry Godwin is a hog farmer, and so he's come up with this concept of of uh, throwing someone in a in a in a pig pen because there's a sense of uh, psychology in the way that he intimidates his opponents or, or panics his opponents with notions of of grime and dirt that he's obviously not afraid of. And that's sort of the core of the match here plays into Helmsley's character is the, you know, is the upper class snob talked about DBS and that notion of not wanting to be embarrassed. That's the very same concept really that's at play here. So I think it's a wonderful use of, of characters carrying and a feud carrying over into a pay-per-view payoff match, which is something we've often talked about on the show is not happening very often anymore. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, it's very kind of precognitive because you you've got a a match type, a de match design, a genre design uh, that would be used, you know, ad nauseum come the Attitude Era, whether it's it's you know something like a buried live match or um, you know something that's that's you know less uh, less worthy of of our attention, like. Um, uh, what was it they always used to have the women do very degradingly, like where they'd be thrown in a mud pie or oh, something like that? Yeah, like there's that almost Survivor Series like uh, eggnog matches and stuff. Yeah, uh, stupid <laughs> shit like that. Um, but it's it's like all of that, and and the fact that it's uh, it's there's, there's a couple of there's genuinely a couple of kind of of, of you know wince inducing moments when they're kind of wrestling around the actual pen. I think at one point Helmsley gets gets whipped into the gate on the pen and stuff. Um, so it's, I think it's charming. I think it's, it's, it's an indulgence definitely, but I think it still has a lot of, of, of creative merit, you know, and it, it, because it plays into characters, it has a certain psychology, psychological bent to it, you know, in the same way that the blindfold match at WrestleMania seven has, they lean into, um, you know, there's an energy that leans into the gimmick that stops it becoming just ridiculous and actually makes it quite fun to sit and watch. Uh, and that's why it's, it, it is one of my guilty pleasures, and that's why I've been dying to talk about it. It's New Gen doing what New Gen does best, which is making the most out of less. Um, you know, never has an era demonstrated less is more more than New Gen, and I think in in a number of ways this is a, a great example of that. I think you know the, the crucial thing with any gimmick match is um, the story has to merit it, and the story here is pretty simple. You've got a snob. Um, and Vince has said, you know, the whole purpose behind the Triple H character was um, to mock the people that used to look down on him when he was young. Because I think 
Vince's story is that you know he had he he was estranged from his father and lived in a trailer and stuff outside of Greenwich and therefore I think, he, I think the, there is very some very sad stories about him being abused by his uh, stepdad I think or something which probably would explain a little a bit lot. yeah um but yeah. um you know he always talks about how he hated people from Greenwich as being yeah. uh, as being snobby hence why this triple h character was announced to be from greenwich connecticut because actually triple h himself i think grew up in boston so um nothing nothing of the sort so it's um it's it's a really simple story in that you've got the snob uh in his fine clothing particularly as this is the point where triple h is still coming out in the hunting pinks and the you know the silk shirts and so on and so forth against godwin who is you know a pig farmer and so it's it's a perfect sort of storm and it's quite a clever match in terms of the rules as well you know it's like you, you have to be thrown over the hog pen you know it's like the royal rumble but with a hog pen <laughs> so you mean oh throwing, my throwing, god i want a hog pen royal rumble match so, uh, right rather you being thrown in as opposed to thrown out no i um, mean the ring is in a hog pen Oh so yeah. If you get thrown in, thrown out of the ring you you fall into the hog pen and they can have pig uh, we need a hog pen from hell match Oh god, the kennel, like from kennel from hell! Like a kennel from hell match, but in a hog pen instead. You, you're in a hog pen inside of a hog pen, and there are rabid pigs on the outside. The um, if you've ever like read the um, eyewitness accounts of the wrestlers that are involved, the kennel from hell. <laughs> it, honestly, it's hilarious. It's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Um, but it, it's like all these things. It's it's about the way in which you sort of pitch the drama because on this on the face of it you know it's just an all wrestling match except the stipulation is you get thrown over this 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 pen and triple h does such a brilliant job with the near falls as you say there's a bit where he gets thrown over but he ends up on the top bit and that and there's that sort of near fall element to this match is really underrated i think they do a really good job of it and of course triple h wins but as as always happens with the hills he doesn't get the last laugh he, uh, he he gets, you know, thrown in there, and he, and he does that great classic sort of, very eighties actually, thing where he can't get his footing and he keeps falling back into the mud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I mean, that's another thing as well. On top of everything I said, there's, there's that classical element to it. You know, the heel wins, uh, but gets embarrassed after the fact. Yeah, indeed. It's it's like. I think at this point they still had quite a good grip on that sort of 80s style without a spit, without it feeling as slow as some of the 80s stuff can feel when you watch it nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. I always loved as well with Helmsley, by the way. I haven't said this through the series, but I always loved the fact that there's always been, all the way through his entire stint with the company, um, even after he became the game and the cerebral assassin and all the rest, there's always been that kind of subtle continuity of him coming from a snobby background and a privileged background that dates all the way back to his original character. And I've always appreciated that, you know, it's never been, they haven't quite worn it on on the sleeve since he turned sort of into the game in 99, but it's always sort of bubbled in the background of who he is and where he's come from and stuff. Well, it's like the, even when he became the COO, like he's wearing expensive suits. And, yeah. you know, the jewellery and, you know, the, the Rolex and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, they've always played it into into that that character. And, of course, you know, he's the Connecticut blue blood who has married into the ultimate Connecticut blue blood yeah. in real life. So and that, they've always that, kept that, that going. 
that craving for power means that because that's always defined his character as well. You could, I think, you, I think you could look back on his time with the company uh, and for large swathes of it, see it as sort of almost like a, you know, one long song of ice and fire esque, uh, uh, you know, uh, Peter Baelish style machination of. Uh, of playing people off against each other and, and, and moving up the ladder for himself. Oh, definitely. I mean, particularly, you know, some of the the sort of the, the drama between him and Sean, there's all that sort of like he used Sean and then he says that Sean's dropped the ball and then, you know, the 2002 stuff and then, yeah, really, really kind of clever, like the two-man power trip, how cynical that was. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Right, so Owen and Diesel, very short match, which ends in Diesel being disqualified. But in terms of character, I mean, I mean, to be honest, I'd watch Owen Hart wrestle for four minutes anytime, <laughs> anywhere, anyway. Um, but I thought as, as a sort of heel-heel or tweener-heel match, this is really interesting because it's like Diesel's rather cynically saying that he's targeted Owen because Owen put Sean out when it's obvious that Diesel doesn't care about anything of the sort. He just wants to pick a fight. Yeah, no, totally. And I think from a meta perspective as well, I think Owen was the perfect person to, to pose him against here because um, you, you have all of that character relevance going on. But Owen does a, a, a fantastic job, as he always did, of just bumping around and making Diesel look like an absolute monster, uh, which, you know, after he's just dropped the world championship... Uh, is such a boon for him as a performer for his um, for his position in the company to not, uh, you know, to not come off looking worse than he did when he was champion. You know, you've sort of, you've, you've had him drop the title the next month. Immediately you're, you're sort of rehabilitating him in the eyes of the audience by making him look like a monster and essentially squashing one of the more prominent villains in the company for that era. Uh, so I think it's a really smart move. Because it doesn't, it, it didn't in any way, uh, you know, it didn't in any way pull a rug out from under Owen either, who would continue to sort of settled at this point into a very effective utility role. So um, I think it's a it's a great piece of of, of decision making to pit these two against each other and to let them have the match that they have. Because Diesel gets, I think Diesel gets DQ'd as well in this because yeah. he sort of loses his loses his temper and so you've got the character progression there you could argue for those who are into these 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 kinds of discussions that owen is quote unquote protected by the fact that he technically wins the match you know all all that sort of stuff so just smart again smart decision making yeah no absolutely i i agree entirely this was, this was great booking um and and did good things for everybody involved which is you know rare enough goodness knows Quite. Also, afterwards they had the interview that sets up Diesel v Taker, or begins Indeed, to set yes. up Diesel v Taker. Indeed. I think this is. Don't they both do that motion around their waist on this show to say that they both want to be champion? So then, well, it's a bit of a weird way of setting up Taker's number contender for the Rumble because Vince just says on commentary, "I've been handed a note." Yeah, and he like reads it. Well, it says here the Undertaker is the number one contender. It's like, okay. I would prefer that to to the way that they have done it for years now. You know, I miss the days where they would just say this is going to be the match. Yeah, frankly. yeah. It's just that it was just the, the the strange way they set it up. Like, like I guess you couldn't get away with it now because everyone knows that Vince owns the company. I guess people didn't then. So it's oh, like quite. Vince, like, oh, someone's given me a note. It's like, 
but did you check that the note was you know like real or it's just someone in the audience who's decided they want the undertaker yeah. to win the time poor bear has slipped in the note exactly um but diesel is like annoyed because he's like well what have you done to earn a number one contender shot what you beat mabel which is a fair point <laughs> yeah quite yes i did <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which then a, a mabel casket match bold booking there by the way before we get to that DiBiase comes out and reveals he's bought Santa Claus. Oh, of course. How could we forget? Yeah. Which, uh, you know, obviously is just a bit of a bit of fluff. Uh, but I remember when I saw that, I was like, man, that's that's dark. The <laughs> idea that Santa Claus would sell out to somebody for, for young kids. That's that's dark stuff, man. Well, I mean, that's sort of and consistent that's, with that's Ted DiBiase buying up the optimism of children. Yes. Yeah, whereas DiBiase is. Uh... I- I could perform and talk this all day from, from the uh, from the moment. But there's a whole thing with Savio Vega there as well, where he he says, "Oh, you think I couldn't buy you uh, and stuff like that." So you know, even there, I'm not quite sure where that goes. Actually, does that go anywhere with DiBiase and Vega? Uh, probably not. No, I don't think so. But um, I, I think I think it turns out to be an imposter Santa Claus anyway. Uh, and uh, go figure. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything <laughs> uh, to the to the audience of this show, but um, and uh, but you know, power through influence. I own Santa Claus. I own Christmas. Well, quite. I mean, you could go all the way back to the kid dribbling the basketball 99 times and him kicking it away on the. Uh, you know, it's just. I mean, I mean, to be honest, when it when you sort of you know just like we talk about the Helmsley there, when it all comes down to it, you know, Vince basically created the million dollar man as a, a version of himself. Um, and DBOC was the perfect person to portray it. And he did. I think, I think Vince has even said that that's the gimmick that he would have had, had he been able to be a, a professional wrestler himself. Exactly. Or the gimmick he would have wanted to have had. Well, there's always stories out there that, you know, uh, that, um, Pritchard uh, talks about on his on his podcast like that Vince on a plane one time did like pay somebody five hundred dollars not to smoke and stuff like that. Um, right. So it's 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 uh, <laughs> the whole I'll pay you this amount of money if you do this. Like it's clearly something that uh, you know was was really something that that, that Vince did from time to time. Um, so um, moving on then we got the Undertaker against Mabel then casket match. I mean, at this point, the Undertaker. How many casket matches must he have had by this point? Oof. Like, yeah. we're, we're in the. I mean, uh, and not one of them any good. No, I mean the Yoko one for pure comedy. Oh yeah, I forgot the Yoko one. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I like the Yoko match. I could go for that. But yeah, it's it's like there were so many of them in the early part of Taker's career. They had to then like invent stuff like the last ride match because like. Oh, can't do any more casket matches now. <laughs> um, well, I've I've got two notes here. <laughs> one is mercifully short, unlike the one at SummerSlam. True. Uh, and the other one is pretty sure Jeff Hardy is carrying Mabel's throne. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, he probably was. Like they were, they both Hardys were jobbing on TV by this point. Uh, but that's it. I don't have any, I don't have any notes 
about the actual match. I mean, all I'd say that was funny about it is that he puts Samo in the casket with Mabel before he closes the lid. Excellent. So, like, so uh, he's about to close the lid. Mo interferes. So take a beats up Mo and puts him in there as well. <laughs> then closes the lid. <laughs> oh, poor Samo. I know, I know. And you don't really see much of either after that, do you, really? No. Mercifully. Until Viscera comes around, I suppose. <laughs> Big Vis. Um, Big Daddy V. Do you remember that one? And then, yeah, that was... And that was, like, 2008. So, like, God knows, like, what a... And what was that? There was that weird period as well where he was, like, a sex addict. And it was, like, V for Viagra, and he proposed to Lillian Garcia. Oof. It might have been that this this might be at a time when I wasn't watching, you know. I think it was yeah, oh, 07, it might have been around then, yeah. I just remember it, yeah, it must have been because I remember seeing it. The only reason I know it is because of the 07 Rumble. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First show I'd watched in, in like two years, and, and you see that, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think I came back a bit later in 07, and then I obviously just went back and watched the shows that I've missed. But yeah, I missed the TV surrounding that. To see, um, to see Undertaker and Shawn Michaels set your favourite precedent in <sighs> history. <laughs> Do you know, it's funny. I've, I've, I've stepped down from column writing this week. Uh, and yet, when I think about the Rumble and this idea of like everyone expecting these tropes to be in it every year and how fake that is and how actually most of these supposed like classic things you have to have are much more recent than people realise. It's like, Maybe my first CF column might turn up sooner than I thought. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's I think it's it's a sign of the times. I think it you know, the, it's easy to forget, especially when you've been watching as long as 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 you have and as long as I was, that there's there's got to be a whole now generation of adult wrestling fans who've only existed post Cena. Yeah, uh, and so to them it's an age old trope literally like it's it's the kind of trope they've only ever known to happen in a royal rumble uh, and that comes down to people not watching their back catalog and not and not teaching themselves about um you know where wrestling's come from uh, and where wwe's come from which is exactly why we've done series like this over the time that we've been doing the pond yeah i'd be interested to know difficult to know really like how much back catalog uh you know, these sorts of Cena era Gen Z wrestling fans have watched in a way. Because um, obviously, like, assuming a parent got them into it, they might have the network and might have some, you know, have done some sort of journeying along with it. I mean, I know I've, I've taught kids that have told me their favourite wrestler is Steve Austin. And even though Steve Austin retired about, 10 years before they were born so it's a bit like well um anyone before steve austin see because steve austin wouldn't surprise me because of of how heralded they they decide to give the attitude here this this holy grail treatment don't they yeah that's true that's true um yeah so it's, it's, it's difficult to know really like because i mean when i think about my experience i started watching in 1990 and you know like in terms of like my knowledge i very quickly went all you know knew as much as you know i could go back as far as like 1984 1985 once i've been into wrestling for a year or two you know i'd re i watched all the wrestlemanias before wrestlemania 6 
to like get the the history i'd be interested to know if kids do that nowadays or not i mean and i'd i'd be interested to know out of those who do uh, you know let's use your sort of catch-all term gen z wrestling fans those who do what they think of it because wrestling has changed is has gone so far away from what it was back then in terms of the content that you get regularly now and what's heralded as great and what's heralded as dull uh, and how often you and I have found ourselves perhaps swimming against the popular current because of how our tastes are so divergent, uh, not divergent. So, uh, you know, how they converge so much with each other. Um, you know, uh, I'd be interested to see what the reaction is because of how those fans have been uh, conditioned. I mean, I'm, I'm wary of us getting into old men yell at cloud territory here, but you know, <laughs> it, was, it was better in our day, um, which by the way it was, but that's, by the by, um, I think, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if the average wrestling fan today has watched stuff from the past, but I don't think that if they if they have, there's really much consideration of, of the lessons going on. I'm not saying there necessarily has to be, but um, because I can't help but feel if there was, things would be significantly less heralded today than they actually are. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's a bit like, I mean, really, when you think about it, it's not that much different to somebody that's in cinema watching Citizen Kane or something, you know, um, you know, you'd like to think that, uh, a, a, any young wrestling fan worth their salt would want to watch Steve Austin v. Bret Hart from WrestleMania 13, because how can you call yourself a wrestling fan if you've not watched that? It just is the way you, you can't call yourself a fan of film. If there aren't, if there are certain films that you haven't experienced, I, I you know, it's the best analogy I can think of really. I never put you down for a prescriptivist, Mav. Well, not, but uh, I don't. It's just a, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's kind of. I think I think there's there's probably um, a difference between the fans who who just want to be entertained and the fans who want to be entertained through an appreciate sort of a, a more nuanced appreciation of what it is. Yes, um, that's a good way to put it. Uh, and you know, so to take your analogy of of film, for example. Um, I would love to, I've never watched it. I would love to go back and watch a film like Citizen Gain. Um, and even if I didn't necessarily enjoy it, I imagine I'd be able to sort of look at it and go, okay, well, I can appreciate why, you know, people will like this about it and that aspect of it. And this was d- well done. Um, and there'll be other people who just want to sit down, watch a film to be entertained and think, oh God, this is dull and, and, and turn it off. But it's, it's, you know, the, I, I guess the, the significant difference is that with wrestling, um, if it isn't a certain thing, at least this is my opinion, if it isn't close to being a certain thing, then eventually it will just it will just peter out. Um, and, and the issue for me has become over the last few months, um, recognizing or beginning to recognize and beginning to see in a different light the fact that it has strayed too far away from what it should be at its core principle Um to really survive for any kind of prolonged period of time if it continues in the way that it is, it is gone for the last couple of years because it's just getting more and more hysterical and more and more unrealistic and more and more ridiculous what goes on uh, between the ropes. Uh, and if it doesn't, you know, I, I've, I've written for so many years now championing the idea that we have to accept in this day and age wrestling is, is, you know, predetermined and we have to embrace that fact and look at it as performance art rather than as simulated sport. But that doesn't mean it, it can stop being simulated sport. 
you know yes. it's 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 um my ideas have always been about um you know it's not that wrestling can be anything it's that wrestling can be read to mean anything which is a, a two completely different ideas um because as primetime has said many times our friend from from lop and as i've said on this show in the past um coming off of the back of what he's been excelling for so many years you know if if you say wrestling can be anything, then it doesn't have a definition, which in turn means it isn't anything at all. Um, and, and that's when you get into some very dangerous territory. And sadly, I think that's the territory that it's ventured into and, and doesn't look set to want to retreat from anytime soon. I think, you know, that what I wrote in my column um, was, it is the Nero fiddling while Rome burns. And it, it, as we've said, uh, you know, over the, the last six to nine months it's difficult to get away from the fact that this is a mess of vince's making um well well to a degree it is i think i curiously enough i was thinking about this earlier today and i and i sort of came to a, a rough conclusion i haven't given it that much thought that you know we've we've spent so many years saying we need another, you know, there needs to be another war, there needs to be another war so that ratings war so that wrestling can be good again. And then AEW comes along, everyone gets all excited and it actually turns out to just be a competition to see whose feet touch the floor last, um, which doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, but I realised that I think we there's probably been a war going on for longer than any of us has realised. It's just been a culture war. Uh, we kind of touched on this on a, on a previous show. You know, between that kind of... of of wwe uh, is inherently bad so if it happens on wwe you know it's going to be bad uh, and indie wrestling is great and it needs to be more like njpw it needs to have that japanese influence and stuff uh, compared to the more traditional way that wwe has done things and that has that has uh, that culture war has has manifested in different ways whether it's been the idea of, of nxt embracing talent that's been reared on the indie circuit whether it was the ovw class uh, you know, phenomenon, whether it was this idea at WWE being landed the big men where they won't push someone like Daniel Bryan because he's too small, whether it has been the arguments that they have proactively decided to quote unquote bury guys who have been popular when they shouldn't have been or force pushing people like John Cena and, and Roman Reigns. All those kind of conversations have, have emerged and, and been manifestations of that culture war. And at some point, one of those two sides was going to have to, I think, begin to gain more traction than the other. And, and what's happened is because WWE have kind of thought the way to adapt to the influence of the Internet has basically just been to embrace it regardless. Uh, and they've started just recruiting en masse from the indie circuit. Anyone who's had any buzz, they've they've decided to recruit and eventually they, they push them to the main roster because NXT is kind of a developmental system, but it's kind of not. And then all these guys have kind of gone through this developmental system that hasn't developed them. So they've carried all their habits that haven't been hammered out of them up to the main roster. So then they become culturally endemic on the main roster. And then people start getting, getting buzzed about because they do a certain thing so that everyone else starts to do the certain thing. And all of that has now developed uh, and Vince has had a huge hand in what's gone on because, you know, the, the product has obviously stunk and that's outside the hands of the talent. You know, the creative is bad. The, the roster positioning is non-existent. The amount of content is ludicrous and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think if anything, at this point, my viewpoint is becoming that Vince's sort of most reprehensible or, or unforgivable role in all of this has not been to effectively keep sort of 
defend his ground a little bit and keep doing things the way that has always worked for WWE and instead allowed that to be diluted. I mean, you, I think you tweeted, Mav, the other day, you retweeted something that William Regal tweeted about, you know, good, a good habit in professional wrestling about pinning or something. Mm. Um, and you said, you know, you should be telling that to the wrestlers. And this is the state we're in now. You have veterans like William Regal and Triple H and, and Shawn Michaels and so on and so forth who, who, who will extol certain principles that would resemble that of the old school mindset. You don't see it anywhere on the television. So we're in this bizarre kind of double think world now. It's not even double think. It's just a double reality um, where I don't know what they're watching because, you know, if they're seeing what they are championing, I'm not seeing it. So there's, you know, there's anyway, I, I, I kind of, um, I've, I've gone way off point here, but the, the, uh, what I was driving at was that I think that there's been a, a, a culture war developing that we haven't spotted. Uh, and the reason why now so many, um, you know, long-term fans like yourself, like me, perhaps more ardently have decided to start leaving to such a wave that people have been actively commenting on, on social media. You know, I've, I've never known this number of people decide that they've, they've had enough. Um, I think that's why, because you, you, because professional wrestling industrially is tipping one way that isn't for me. And, and so that's why I've said, and we'll say again, even if the storylines got better, even if the roster positioning got better, even if all those issues we've talked about got better, I worry the wrestling won't. Uh, and if the wrestling doesn't get better, that's the, you know, that's, that's what you build everything on without that. You don't have anything anyway. So that's, <laughs> that's an explosion of thought for you to I sift mean, through. I, I would have taken it. I mean, I take it a little bit of a step further in the sense that, I mean, the thing for me is there's no quality control of any way. So you've got all of the worst Vince habits, overproduction, long epic length shows, um, bizarre booking decisions, changing minds at a moment's notice so all of those things which are historical wwf we problems if we're being honest since forever but then you add in this indie excess pop the crowd pop the crowd pop the crowd's the point that popping the crowd doesn't mean anything anymore because it's not there's no there's no light and shade it's just all shade um or light all light yeah so because of you've got the the worst habits of both i think have combined together and that's why it feels like such a soulless um product and, and and why you know it's kind of you know things like if you can think of a a more obviously wwe thing to do then bring in the big show three weeks before Royal Rumble. In 2020. Yes. Like, Seth Rollins and AOP, standing tall in the ring, you know, feuding with Samoa Joe and, um, forget who the guy was, actually. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Owens. Owens. Yeah, Kevin Owens and Samoa Joe. Like, that's a good bunch of contemporary talent there. Seth Rollins, AOP, Samoa Joe, Kevin Owens, great. So who did Kevin Owens and Samoa Joe call for backup? The fucking big show. That's that's so WWE. <laughs> because it's a rumble and because you see he'll enter it and he'll be hard to throw out. So they'll do that spot where 20 people lift out the big show as if no one's ever done it before. 
that's the sort of that's the sort of stuff that drives me mad, really. Um, in addition to what you said, like endless finisher kickouts, matches that last six days, all that stuff. So they've kind of got the worst of both going on, I think. And I'll segue neatly back into <laughs> nice ninety five by saying that if you want the match that represents the very best of professional wrestling and what professional wrestling should be, in the opinion of me and Plan, then really you couldn't choose a better match than the main event of this show, which is, of course, Bret Hart against the British Bulldog. I think you've called it before, Plan, the Empire Strikes Back um, to the new Absolutely. hope of 1992. Um, it is um, an extraordinarily dark piece of theatre as a pro wrestling match. Bret Hart wins, but he doesn't look much like a winner at the end of it, which is a, a Bret Hart trope that I always love anyway. Um, but particularly as he is against his, you know, his uh, his brother-in-law. And this time, you know, there's this great promo. I wouldn't say she, she, did it. she didn't deliver it very well, but the idea with Diana not having any divided loyalties this time, it's all with her husband. Uh, and even Bulldog's, like, promo is, like, completely unhinged. It's this weird, like, 80s style wrestling <laughs> promo where he just shouts in the camera but it's great like it's so intense um and they go on to just have this brilliant wrestling match brett blades about halfway through um i think probably cuts a bit deeper than he was meant to yeah it's, he, a, it's a horrifying bit of crimson isn't it it's, it's eddie guerrero <laughs> against jbl sorts of levels almost isn't it almost um, yeah not quite but almost um, but it's it's such it's such a, a brilliant match. The Bulldog's sort of power and ferocity against uh, Bret Hart's smarts. Um, Lawler throughout is saying, you know, oh, yeah, Bret can't, you know, Bret tried to get Bulldog in that hole, but he's just too powerful. We can't keep him in it. And it's that thing you've said before, that he, he, he combines the best, the best of Diesel and the best of Bret Hart in one package. And the best of Shawn Michaels as well. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, you've you've uh, you've jumped the gun on my on my line about Star Wars and Empire. So damn you, Mav. Um, the the implication, of course, being that this is the the darker and more character driven sequel to the the more um, energetic and and perhaps uplifting uh, first edition. Uh, that we got at Wembley, and I actually prefer this one to the Wembley match, and I know that might yeah, be somewhat heretical to, to other professional wrestling fans, but um, I think it's got a little bit more substance to it than the Wembley match, um, and I think it's it's just so compelling and so dramatic, and I remember the first time I ever saw it was when I bought um, Bret Hart's uh, DVD that they released in like 2006 when he got invo- in, uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, and uh, it just blew me away then. It continues to blow me away every time I, I sit and watch it. You always, it, the blade job's one of those, you always forget how bad it is until you watch the match again. Um, and so it never it never fails to sort of take your breath away. Um, I love the fat bulldogs wearing the tights that are reminiscent of, of the tights he wore when he beat Brett at Wembley. We the very same whole, ones, in fact. The, there's that whole element of, of Brett can't beat Bulldog, you know, which was something they once had with Seth and Roman before they decided to just throw that away on Raw. Um, so many kind of elements. But even if it didn't have any of that window dress, and even if they didn't have the first match, and even if there wasn't the psychology of the tights, and even if there wasn't the, the win-loss record of the two, even if there wasn't the family aspect with Diana in the crowd, it would still be just as dramatic because it is just brilliantly wrestled 
a brilliantly performed, intelligently put together professional wrestling that is just the absolute best of the kind of drama that you can elicit from it, from this art form that, it, that is demonstrative of why we call it an art form, in fact, um, and demonstrative of why Bret Hart in particular, not to talk down Bulldog's contribution, of course, but why Bret Hart in particular was such a masterful artist uh, between those ropes. Because like you say, I mean, he wins the match. He doesn't do it with a sharpshooter. He doesn't do it with a finisher. You know, he just does a cradle and he wins the match and it feels desperate and it looks desperate. Um, and it's just such a wonderful piece of work. It really is. Um, you know, I sort of first revisited this, I think, when the new gem Blu-ray um, came out oh, the, right. the in your house Blu-ray. Obviously, yeah. I watched this, you know, around the time it happened. But, but I, I first sort of properly revisited it around there, and I think I'd read your entry in one hundred and one on it mm. before I watched it again. And it's, it, it's, it's uh, since then. I, I it's a match that I've revisited probably as much as any match because it, it's great to have a match in which, um you know bulldog is clearly an antagonist it's not like a baby face thing yeah. and he really goes all out as the antagonist and especially as you know brett has rather uncharitably described the wembley match as a carry job because <laughs> bulldog forgot his spot to do all that sort of stuff which i always thought even if that was true brett i'm not sure you need to write that in your autobiography like the man's dead <laughs> like you know at least at least uh, uh allow his fans that sort of you know um, memory of that triumph at Wembley, but when the... Brett when Brett feels he deserves credit, he's going to take it. <laughs> quite, but it, you know this is a match where Bulldog quite clearly is a more experienced performer, is a more confident performer, and is equally responsible for the kind of um, as you say art uh, that's created there. And it, it, you know it's what it's everything professional wrestling should be. This match, a main event. Uh, between two main event talented wrestlers that have a clear story to tell about family, you know, family ties dissolving and past um, past events informing future events and Bulldog's continuing uh, bitterness that, you know, he's been denied world title shots in the past. He had one against Diesel um, and now he's got this one against Brett. And as you say, he was the top heel in the company at the time and he did a great job as the top heel of the company. And it's a, a real pity that he's not remembered as having been the top heel in the company, because probably most people would assume that he was a face by default, even though most of his new gen run was as a heel. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly his best work was as a heel. Uh, I don't think anything he did as a babyface, um, certainly during New Gen, really was, and probably before that as well. To be fair, was was anything like the kind of work that he did um, in '96 and and um, well '95 and '96, perhaps less so '97 when he kind of takes a bit more of a backseat to Owen again, um, sort of in that mid card position, as it were, but. Um, I, I guess beyond anything else, that's a that's a great reason why this should this match should be immortalised as well as it's it's probably um, maybe King of the Ring '96, but it's it's probably Bulldog's you know greatest 
showing and certainly his most threatening showing, you know. And this is a guy who was positioned as a very, very convincing threat against both Brett and Sean. Um, and, you know, I mean, Brett and Sean are on such a level as athletes that if you can even keep up with them uh, as professional wrestlers and storytellers, if you could keep up with them, then you're in then you're in a whole class of your own. And Bulldog could. I mean, that, I, you know, to my mind, that <laughs> that puts him above a huge number, probably the vast majority of his, his historical and uh, peers, contemporary peers and, 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 you know, contemporaries of today. I mean, you think about Bulldog, you know, he was a exceptional tag wrestler. The tag team that he was in, in the eighties was uh, known as being the most athletic and gifted tag team at that point that they'd ever been. Um, he, you know, he kind of went on to be that sort of third or fourth babyface on the roster by sort of 92, and he won that IC championship. Um, and then when he comes back, his his one great babyface moment in New Gen is that uh, coast-to-coast run in the 95 Rumble that we started with. Um, and then, as you say, once he becomes a hero under Cornette, he just gets better and better and better. Another brilliant tag run in 96 with Owen. And then, of course, you get the New Heart Foundation in 97. So it it was a brilliant career that Bulldog had. Um, and, well, I mean, he's, he's, he's not in the Hall of Fame, is he? Uh, I suppose he's not, no. Which, Blimey. you know, seems like a massive oversight, really. Absolutely. I suppose maybe there's that, there's that whole thing where the proximity with Owen and Owen's widow not letting Owen go in. Mm, there might be some politics surrounding that, but Brett's in, so it... Yeah, and Brett would obviously who be knows? an ideal person to induct him, so... Yeah, who knows? Maybe yeah. yet. Yeah, no, indeed. Uh, well, that is essentially 1995 wrapped up, so hope you've enjoyed our bit of myth-busting, and if you have been inspired to go back and watch any of these shows because of these podcasts, then then great because that's why we decided to do them so uh a bit of news um next week uh, will be the last episode of the right side of the pond which is of course a very sad time but we felt like uh as our own um interest and uh passion for pro wrestling has been uh, waning due to the downturn of the product it's probably the right time for us to step away and let some uh, jolly and enthusiastic people <laughs> take over so that we're not shouting at clouds for the next <laughs> year or so. Um, so obviously we've, it's been an honor to, uh, to, to kind of uh, have the opportunity to talk on the airways about pro wrestling for the last six years. And we'll have one more show just to take a few trips down memory lane and talk about some of our favorite pond moments and favorite pro wrestling moments. And, well, goodness knows, really, I think we'll just end up calling in the ring a little bit. But, um, yeah, so make sure you tune in next week because after that, uh, apart from me maybe whoring myself and other people's podcasts from time to time when I feel like <laughs> it, uh, you won't get to hear us anymore. So, um, yes, last episode of The Pond next week. Be there or be square. No one said that since 1995. That's why I thought it'd be a, a good time to bring it back. <laughs> to be fair, lots of these people I've done since 1995 that I still may, regularly do. You may have just dropped the final pond meme. 
Well, I might, I'm off to get a can of Cherry 7-Up now, so I'm fully in 1995. <laughs> um, well, from the right side of the pond for this week, uh, we'll see you next week for our last show. Until then, have a great weekend, and we'll see you later. Bye.